Welcome. As you can see, Judge Lynch is going to be joining us remotely, and we'll be just participating uh, as regularly throughout. But at the end, Judge Lynch, I'll make sure if you haven't had a chance to ask any questions, uh, to have a chance to do so. With that, we're that's ready to go. That's so unlikely that I won't have <laughs> I think that's true. Today's case will be called as previously announced, and the times will be as allotted to counsel. The case today is 22 1129 United States versus Gamal Abdelaziz and 22 1138 United States versus John Wilson. Attorney Francisco, can you please come up to the podium and introduce yourself? <clears throat> Chief Judge Barron, and may it please the court, Noel Francisco for John Wilson. If I could uh, reserve three minutes for rebuttal. You may. <clears throat> Chief Judge Barron, uh, the Supreme Court has repeatedly warned against an overly aggressive application of the federal fraud statutes. This case is a textbook example of that error. It began with an erroneous indictment that charged non-existent crimes based on a non-existent conspiracy, and it continued with evidentiary rulings that eviscerated our core defense, that John Wilson believed that the side door was a legitimate process. As a result of these errors, he was convicted not for what he did, but for what others did, as the government repeatedly argued to the jury. How do you know that these defendants had criminal intent? You knew it because the others did. They said it on the stand. We caught it on tape. The result was a fundamentally unfair trial. There are three buckets of issues in this case, each of which requires uh, at a minimum an acquittal or alternatively a new trial. First, the legal issues the meaning of bribery, property, and the related jury instructions. Second, the Kodiakus issue. And third, the massive exclusions of relevant evidence. If you, wouldn't, like if you wouldn't mind taking the second one first before we get to the threshold. So just assume that the 666 and honest services uh, uh, fraud and uh, money or property could be satisfied on this record and just start with the Kodiakus issue, that would be best for me. Sure, Your Honor. Uh, frankly, <clears throat> I think there are a lot of hard Kodiakus cases, but this isn't one of them because this case is quite literally on all fours with Kodiakus itself. Under the government's theory, every drug user is in a conspiracy with the drug kingpin. All of the kingpin well, dealers... Well, let me just get into this case and the record here. As I take it, the government's... Um, evidence with respect to your client has to do with the evidence of referrals of right. other parents. If exactly, I, if, Your Honor. And, and, I, and my hypothetical was trying to get exactly at that. Because under their position, every drug user is in a conspiracy with the kingpin and all the dealers. As long as that particular drug user knows he's not the only one, refers a couple of his friends to his local dealer, and doesn't want the kingpin to get caught so he can become, come back for more drugs. With all respect, uh, that would completely <clears throat> demolish Kodiakus itself. Well, counsel, After the, all, it seems to me the, the government argues a theory of interdependence, which on its face makes some sense, in the sense that the parents, each parent has a stake in the success of Singer's overall scheme. You suggest that they were indifferent to the success of other parents and perhaps even competitive, and yet... Uh, to the extent that Singer is successful in any one instance, that strengthens the effectiveness of his scheme. So in that sense, 
they all have a stake in how well he does with respect to each parent. Isn't that true? Uh, respectfully, Your Honor, I think you could say the exact same thing in Kodiakus, and you could say the exact same thing with respect to the customers of any uh, illegal conspiracy, because the customers are really interested in only getting their product, and obviously if the business goes out of business, they're not going to get their product. Let me uh, take a step back to, to help explain a little more. Any principle of interdependence has to distinguish between, to carry through with my hypothetical, the kingpin and his dealers on the one hand, and the kingpin and his customers on the other. Very often, the participants on the supply side of an illegal operation, the kingpin, the dealers, the mules, they're going to be interdependent upon one another, often, not always. That's almost never true of the customers, because the customers really don't care about each other. All they want is to get their product. Here, for example, as Your Honor suggested, John Wilson didn't give two hoots whether Bruce Isaacson's kid got in, whether Lori Laughlin's kid got in, whether Gamal Abdelaziz's kid got in, and generally didn't want them to because they were essentially competing for a limited number of side door slots. But under the government's conception that the customers of an illegal operation depend upon one another because they want the overall option to continue so they can keep coming back would essentially render Kodiakus a dead letter, including on the facts of Kodiakus itself. Because you could have said the exact same thing in Kodiakus, that the various participants in Brown's fraudulent loan scheme were vested in the overall health of the operation so they could keep coming back for more fraudulent loans. Was the instruction in Kodiakus that you had to find interdependence? I think that in Kodiakus, the government conceded that there was no interdependence. But, but, uh, that was not my question. Was there an instruction in Kodiakus that you had to find interdependence? Your Honor, I don't... I thought not. Yeah. I thought that was the problem. And this is a post-Kodiakus case in which the instruction is that you did have to find interdependence. Sure, Your Honor, but... It, so then it's an evidentiary point. So I don't know that... And then the question simply is, was there enough evidence of interdependence here? So the relevant question is... In cases in which the question was, is there enough interdependence, mm -hmm. how does this look relative to those type of cases? Well, I think that in cases where there is enough interdependence, this isn't anywhere close. I've read a lot of Kodiakus cases, ones that have found Kodiakus error, one that have, ones that have not found Kodiakus <laughs> error. I have not found a single case that even remotely suggested that the customers of an illegal scheme were somehow inter interdependent upon one another. It's no different than the customers you know, of a grocery store are interdependent upon one another because they all want that grocery store to succeed because that's where they keep coming back to for more ghost groceries. This is really a limitless conception of interdependence. Once you jump the shark from those who are participating in the supply side of the operation to those who simply you, want to do, do you purchase agree, from that. Do you that. agree with me that, at least as I read the government's briefing, other than the referrals of the parents that we've just been discussing, I didn't read the government to identify any other evidence that would satisfy the interdependence, at least in their briefings. Well, I totally agree with that, and I would push back on the referrals as well. As far as I can tell, they've got two instances of referrals. I urge you to actually look at the underlying evidence. It's extremely thin. One of them, it looks like it was just a referral for standard college counseling, the, the totally legitimate side of Singer's operation. Neither of them were the focus of this case. There were no referrals to Isaacson, to Huneus, 
to Lori Laughlin, okay. to Gamal Abdelaziz, uh, or any of the others but, that form before the Before like you said, there's many buckets, and, and there's so many issues in the case that this yes, is going to go a little bit longer than our, our times, inevitably. But before we move off of this first question about whether effectively there was sufficiency of the evidence of the charged nationwide conspiracy, Judge Lynch, did you have any questions on that score? Well, I was about to get into the next stage, Great. but go ahead. You if can... you care to do that. Okay, so, well, that, that, so assuming... Matt, yeah, go ahead. I was going to make one last point mm-hmm. on Kodiakos, and it was with the pre- on, on respect to the prejudice side of it, if yep. I could. There was a reason why the government's very first witness was Bruce Isaacson, and they put him on the stand for a day and a half. And it was so that when they got to the jury, they could argue this, quote... They knew, referring to the defendants, that what they were doing is wrong. One way you know that is because Bruce Isaacson told you that he knew it from that witness stand. And they continued, he knew it, just like Cuneus knew it, just like these defendants knew it. This Kodiakus error was critical to them proving corrupt intent. And that's why it was such a devastating error in this case. As Judge Breyer made clear in the Glenn case, Criminal conspiracy law is extraordinarily powerful because once you are allowed to invoke it, you can bring in all kinds of evidence that is otherwise so, so inadmissible. Then, then just so I understand, it, of course, the, the competing aspect of that is how strong the evidence then is of the smaller conspiracy. The smaller conspiracy Because would the, be the idea of the prejudice with respect to the variance is not prejudice as to the larger one. That was not sufficiently proved. Sure. So the fallback is, but nonetheless... Could your client be charged with the smaller conspiracy, which was to have particularized uh, relationships as to his own children? But as to any conspiracy, though, Your Honor, the critical defense would have been the lack of corrupt intent, good faith. And the evidence that they were able to introduce as a result of charging the broader conspiracy is what allowed them to put Bruce Isaacson on the stand and testify I knew that this was a fraudulent scheme. It was just common sense. Right, but you I'm had saying, to be what, but it depends how much evidence there was of your client independently knowing <clears throat> it was wrong, if there was any, as to his own children. Uh, for sure, Your Honor, but again, the only... And on that score, the, if, if I'm following, the, there was at least one piece of evidence I wanted to ask you about, which was, I believe there's an exchange with Singer... Mm-hmm in which there is a reference to whether the uh, one of the universities would be able to tolerate two such candidates. Sure. Well, and on that score, isn't that some evidence, and, and I don't know how strong you think that evidence is, yeah. of uh, potentially corrupt intent as to the smaller conspiracy? Your Honor, what I would say is it's probably greater than zero, but slightly. Two responses to that. The first is even they didn't think that that one 30-second conversation that happened to occur when my client was in Asia on a 12-hour time difference, so 2 in the morning, basically. Even they didn't think that that one 30-second conversation was particularly strong. That's why they put uh, Bruce Isaacson on the stand as their first witness, and he testified for a day and a half, even as to that 30-second conversation. Uh, the, I think Magistrate Judge Kelly intuitively understood what was going on in these types of situations. Schools are engaged in side doors, back doors, but they don't really want to admit it. It doesn't look good. So, yeah, maybe you can justify putting one manager on the sailing team 
You can't justify putting two managers on the sailing team. It's just a little bit too obvious. Everyone's going to catch on. That piece of thin evidence is precisely why they didn't put all of their eggs in that basket, but instead led with Bruce Isaacson on the stand for a day and a half so he could get up there and say, I knew it was wrong, and so that they could then get to the jury and say, these defendants knew it was wrong. The reason you know they knew it was wrong is because everybody else knew it was wrong, and therefore they must have to devastate the prejudice. Go ahead. You know, on the issue of corrupt intent, I thought there were multiple instances where it was clear that Singer and your client understood that they had to be careful not to expose what was going on. There was a, an emphasis on secrecy so that ultimately the folks in admissions would not understand what had preceded the recommendation that the student be admitted. Your Honor, I would very much disagree with that. Okay. I do think that they point to one exchange that they mischaracterize in their brief where uh, Singer says, don't tell the people at, at the school that you're you know, doing this. But what Singer explains, if you actually look at that exchange, is you shouldn't tell the school about that because once they hear that you're doing it with me, everyone else at the school is going to be coming back and asking for donations too. So it has nothing to do with keeping it secret so the school doesn't catch on, but everything to do with trying to tell, uh, trying to tell uh, Wilson not to do it because everyone's going to come back and ask him for more and more money. If I recall, this was also after Singer had turned state's evidence. And so, you know, it was a pretty carefully and orchestrated set of conversations. But nonetheless, I think in context, it's quite clear that what Singer was saying is, don't say anything to the school because they're going to come back to you and ask for more and more money if you do that. So I don't think that there's uh, any evidence at all about that kind of uh, agreement to engage in secrecy, which again is why they led with Bruce Isaacson, why that was so critical to their case. The first witness, a day and a half, so they could get to the jury and argue what they argued. In many respects, it's kind of like the Martinez case, uh, Chief Judge Barron, that you authored, where it was a misjoinder problem. But because the misjoinder allowed the introduction of evidence that went to corrupt intent, it really did poison and affect everything else. Judge Lynch? Uh, yes. Um, if I could move on, uh, <clears throat> let's assume uh, that... Uh, the government was wrong to charge the larger conspiracy. Let's assume there is a serious Kadiakos problem here. It caused prejudice as to the smaller conspiracy. At most, what you get is a remand for a new trial. Okay? Uh, whether or not you can, uh, at that point, assert double jeopardy is an issue that isn't directly in front of us. But if, in fact, you are correct that um, uh, an offer of admission is not a specie of property, then that knocks out uh, at least uh, one of the arguments on the government's three theories here. So um, let's talk a little about the argument that each of you and the government start out with, which is whether under um, Section 364, uh, <coughs> 
this uh, is actionable. The government says it is actionable because uh, it's uh, uh, bribery that is uh, based on a corrupt intent, even though the Mm -hmm. donation is made to the university. You say no. The language of the statute, and especially if you move beyond text to the skilling narrowing, does not permit the government to assert that theory. If you are correct, then I believe the remedy is acquittal on those charges as opposed to a remand for a new trial. So... It's in that context that I ask you to go back and address the first of the arguments. Happy to, Your Honor. Uh, and that was a very good summary of, our, uh, of, of what we think the consequences of our position are. Our basic position... Thank you, but please, just go on. <laughs> yes, Your Honor. Uh, uh, and our basic position is that, look, not all employee misconduct is a bribe. A bribe is a very particular type of employee misconduct. And its defining feature is when the payment goes to somebody other than the principal. That's why they haven't identified a single case in all of American history where uh, that supports their theory. The Supreme Court has repeatedly warned that this is precisely the area of the law where you don't agree <laughs> agent. In- there's just two things. We, there's, there's the question of 666, mm-hmm. and then there's the question of <clears throat> honest service bribery and the kind of bribery that that statute covers. Right. For purposes of what you're saying now, are you purporting to be construing 666 or are you making a point about 364? Both, Your Honor, because I think 666 takes place against the backdrop in an enti- of an entire history of bribery okay. jurisprudence. Let's set aside 666 for a second because there's text there yep. that we'd have to work through. Yeah. With respect to 364, help me understand your theory of what I am supposed to be construing in determining what a bribe is. Well, Your Honor, I mean, a, a, as you know, we don't actually have any tax right. so that's why I'm asking, honest services. But so you seem got, to be telling me you, it doesn't you, fit got, as a bribe. So what you, are you looking to and what should you, I look you, to? You've got the, the, the skilling case yeah. that says that you have to limit it to core bribery and kickbacks. Well, it doesn't say and, core bribery. It says, yes, I'll, it says, I'll, I'll stipulate bribery. Okay. Right? So what and do they in, mean? In what, do, to, what do you think they mean by that? You, you look at the essentially what skilling did. It looked at the history of the case law in that area, and the reason it got to bribery and kickbacks is because it said if we look at all of that history, those are the only those are you know the core cases that it's meant to cover. Well, if you look at all of the entire history of Anglo-American jurisprudence with respect to bribery law, you're not going to find a single case so anywhere. One, one last question on this point, which is it's really like a lot of things when we're looking backward. What are we looking for? So. One thing we could be saying is the essential elements I'm looking for is a quid pro quo with a corrupt intent. Mm -hmm. And if I find quid pro quo, that's what I discern from the cases. They all require it. Now I see a new fact pattern, quid pro quo, corrupt intent. That can be bribery. You seem to be saying that when I look back at them, I have to find not just quid pro quo plus evidence of a corrupt intent, 
but that it can't go to the principle on the idea that somehow that's inherently defeating of a showing of corrupt intent. And, and I'm just puzzled I, as I'd to how you get that. I'd say it slightly differently okay. than that, Your Honor. You, you're right that bribery requires quid pro quo and corrupt intent. If payment to the principle can be the quid pro quo, then virtually any commercial transaction is a potential bribe, and the only limit is corrupt intent. And why is that a problem? I don't under, see, what I don't understand is that the underlying premise of the bribery statutes, the common law definition, you will, if you will, of bribery, it's trying to protect against a situation where the principle is deprived of the loyalty of the agent, that there is no uh, compromising of the fiduciary obligation that the agent owes to the principle. It seems to me you can have that compromise in a situation where the payment is made to the principle and the agent gains benefit from that payment to the principle. That's the government's mm -hmm. theory here, that the agents here right. uh, gain status within the university community. Uh, maybe there were future promotions available to them because of what happened sure. here. So even in a scenario where the payment is to the principle, that's not classic bribery perhaps, mm -hmm. The underlying concern of the bribery statute is still implicated because you, you end up with the agent violating the fiduciary obligation to the principal because of the payment to the principal. Right. So why don't we have classic bribery here in that sense? So two, two responses, Your Honor. The first is, even assuming that everything that you just said is right, I'm going to explain why I disagree with that in a minute, but even assuming that everything you just said is right, the very least the jury needed to be instructed on this. The jury was given no instructions that allowed it well, to Did distinguish. you request an instruction of this kind? Uh, we certainly objected to Did you require an instruction, request an instruction of this type? Uh, I think we requested a similar instruction, Your Honor, but we certainly objected to the instruction that was given. Yeah, but, and the government concedes that if you forfeit but, that but objection. But if you're now saying that you wanted a narrower instruction, that's a different point, isn't it? Uh, well, I think no, because one, I think... And, and I guess it also is a question, just to going back to Judge Lynch's setup for this part of our colloquy, if what we're asking here is what's going to happen at retrial, right. that's slightly different than can there be a retrial on the issue. The instruction point doesn't save you from the retrial. I agree, Your Honor. So, so maybe put aside the restriction point aside and just on Judge Lopez's question, which is can this be tried at all? I will absolutely do that. I just wanted to make yep. clear that at a minimum we think we're still entitled to that retrial. It's not an insignificant point yep. to our client, uh, Your Honor. Turning uh, to the merits, the reason why I, I disagree with that, Judge uh, Lopez, is because you're right, it's a breach of fiduciary duty, but the courts have been quite clear that not every breach of fiduciary duty is a bribe. A bribe is a very particular type of breach of fiduciary duty. Now, when the quid is going entirely to the principal, you actually do have an alignment between the quid and the principal's interest. The principal is getting all of the quid. What you may have is a very bad deal from the principal's perspective because the quid didn't justify the quo. But again, not every bad deal is a bribe. A bribe is a particular type of bad deal, and the defining feature of it through all American history has been that the payment went to somebody other than the principal. Because in that context, you have completely severed the agent's interests from the principal's interests. At that point, the, agency is, the agent is acting for, for reasons entirely separate and apart from the principal's interests, and you don't have that when the entirety of the quid 
is going to the principal. Again, I think that explains why there's not a single case in history that supports that. And again, this is an area where the Supreme Court has repeatedly said we don't want Counsel. prosecutorial innovation. Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, <clears throat> history is helpful, but, um, you know, we're all in <clears throat> text and narrowing constructions and due process and fair notice concerns, at least in the hierarchy of things we have to be concerned with those take priority. Okay, so uh, let's put aside the textual argument and look at uh, 1346 and uh, the, the uh, narrowing construction language from skilling. So um, one could say that um, the 1346 language under skilling is meant uh, to prevent only the sort of uh, pre-McNally type claims that have been brought. Can't find a case that looks like this pre-McNally. This was not a commonly accepted notion of bribery. One could look at it that way. That argument certainly favors you. Um, another is uh, really to shift over to Justice Scalia's concerns about due process, about fair notice, and say, well, even if arguably the Supreme Court um, allowed some room for this, Still, those concerns exist here, and maybe history plays into this, but I tend to think that's a, a more minor theme. Um, but then we, we're back to the question of what did Congress intend here? Um, and nothing in the language uh, requires that sort of narrowing. Sorry, I sort of feel like we're in a law school class, uh, you know, <laughs> debating these issues. But uh, really, I'm interested in your response. Your Honor, I think I would go straight to the due process issues and the rule of lenity type issues. Because you're right. You don't have a statute, particularly if we're talking about the 1346 side. No. You don't have a statute that addresses any of this. It simply says honest services. The Supreme Court has said that it can't mean what it says because if it did, it would be unconstitutional. Therefore, for constitutional due process reasons, we're scaling it back to this core of crimes. And then you have this core of crimes where they can't find one example ever, pre-McNally, post-McNally, anywhere else in the world that fits this fact pattern. The first time that my client, John Wilson, had noticed that his conduct was a crime was when the government filed this indictment because it's the first time in all of history that anybody has ever charged bribery on this set of facts. Uh, Chief Judge Barron, I'm happy to move to 666 because it. I think it's yep. important. And again, you interpret this language against the entire backdrop of bribery jurisprudence. Here it talks about uh, giving something to any person with the intent to influence the organization. The person and the organization are different things. Co the coach was the person, the school was the organization. Here, uh, my client gave the money to the school, the organization, not to the person. 
At the very least, if Congress wants to overturn the entire history of bribery jurisprudence, it's got to speak more clearly than it did here. And I think that, you know, I point to I, cases I not, like... I don't, I'm not following that argument. I just didn't follow that argument. Okay. Want me to take another yeah. shot? So under the text of the statute, it's illegal for somebody to corruptly give anything of value to any person right. with the intent to influence an agent of an organization. Yeah. Person and organization are separate. And agent is separate, too. Exactly. And I would say that here... So, so does that mean the person has to be the agent or doesn't have to be no, the I agent? I think the person can be the agent, not necessarily, but what I think is quite clear... Well, how if the person doesn't have to be the agent? Why is it that the person... Why, if the person can be the agent, why can't the person be the organization? Well, I point goes straight back to the text. To any person right, with the intent to influence... You're conceding the person can be the agent, right? Your Honor, um, I think... You know, I, I don't know that I necessarily want to concede that, but I don't think it matters, in, in, if I could explain. Because the text says you've got to give something to any person with the intent to influence an agent of an organization. Yeah. I think the one, my main point is that person and agent, whether they're the same or different, are not the same as the organization. The text specifically distinguishes them you've got three from words. the organization. Got, so I just don't know if there's three words. They're all different. And you're saying person can mean agent for purposes of this argument. You're not conceding it, but you're, for the argument, you're assuming it. I'm assuming it. Well, then why can't person mean organization? Well, for two reasons, Your Honor, because the, the statutory language specifically distinguishes the person and the agent from the organization of an organization. And my second point is that at the very least, this is ripe for application of due process principles, because if Congress wants to overturn the entire history of bribery jurisprudence, surely it has to speak more clearly than this. I think in cases like Fernandez, which is not directly on point, but it's a case, Judge Lopez, that you authored, it was uh, quite clear that these types of statutes need to be construed narrowly. It's something that the Supreme Court has repeatedly said. I think well, that's counsel, what... it may be a, a small point, but it's commonplace in the law that we accord personhood to organizations. Is that not a fact? We don't... There's no... Necessary distinction in law between person and organization. There's not a necessary distinction, but in cases like Cedric Kushner in the criminal context where due process principles were at stake, when the Supreme Court interpreted the RICO statute and made quite clear that you did have to draw those types of distinctions. Yep. Remember, that involved the RICO statute, which talked about a person who was, trying, who was part of a uh, corrupt enterprise. And what the court said, you know, in theory, you could have a person that was also an enterprise, but what the court made clear was that you had to, particularly in the criminal context, give meaning to that distinction because of due process. Well, now I'm not understanding. Are you saying that person can't mean any organization? I'm saying that in the context uh, of the statute, those are two no, different things. No, that's not things. what I asked. Are you saying person can't mean any organization? It has to be a person. Ever? In this, in this statute. Or are you in saying statute, it can mean an organization, it just can't mean... The agent's organization. I think I'm saying the, the second thing. You're the second. The second thing. That okay. The and that's can the organization have to be separate? Even though person can be an organization, could be UCLA, for example. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I haven't thought through that aspect of it, Your Honor. Okay. But at the very least, they have to be separate, and that's precisely what the Supreme Court made clear. If we didn't, in the Cedric Kushner. If, if I didn't find this particular argument persuasive as to why the text of six 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 rules out this falling within 666, is there any other textual point 
that you make as to why it doesn't fit within 666? Your Honor, uh, our, our basic textual point is that the language has to be construed in light of due process principles and history. And it, I understand it, that, but yeah. construed to have this result or construed to mean thing of value means something different or corruptly means something different? In other words, what is the textual conclusion that you want us to reach? I mean, the textual conclusion I want you to reach is that this doesn't cover my well, client's conduct. I've made the main textual argument. I'll give you another one in case you don't find that persuasive in light of due process principles. I also don't think that the thing of value can be the type of professional benefit that the government has been relying on. And in there, I'd point you straight to the Seventh Circus decision in the Thompson case. So let me just ask you about that, because if we rejected your first textual argument, then in theory, the person who receives the thing of value could be the organization, which would be the employer, correct? That's what you're resisting. If you reject my position, right. So then, then the thing of value would be the payment to the university. Would there be a need under the statute to show another thing of value, or would there only be a need to show a quid pro quo? Well, Your Honor, uh, I'm not sure of the answer to that, but I think that this whole thing illustrates how uh, it would be extraordinarily odd to interpret this language to require a result that is uh, so contrary to the entire history of bribery jurisprudence. If I could go back to the Thompson case, under this conception, the only thing the prosecutor did wrong in Thompson was charged under the wrong section of 666. That case involved a state employee who caused the state to award a contract, and in exchange, the state got services, the employee got a pay raise. Right, but as you know, the Seventh Circuit itself, in redescribing Thompson, I think, went on to say that the problem in Thompson was that she thought she was acting in good faith, and that was the real problem. Uh, Your Honor, I don't think that's right, and it's certainly inconsistent with the language of Thompson itself. What Thompson made quite clear... I thought in Sorge, that's what the Seventh Circuit said. Uh, that's... Uh, I'm not going to argue with, I, I actually am not 100% sure that that's not my recollection of uh, the meaning of that decision. Okay. But put that aside. Under, even if that's right, what that means is if you're interpreting this language that way, anytime somebody you know, engages in a quid pro quo transaction with an entity that's covered by 666 and they have corrupt intent, that's a bribe. So, so why to, is that a problem? That's what I'm, why wouldn't Congress want that? Because the only limitation then on converting virtually any quid pro quo transaction into a bribe is corrupt intent. You've effectively converted bribery into a thought crime. So say I walk into you know, the head of the admissions office and I say, I'm going to build a $500 million wing onto your school if you let my kid in. Under their theory, that's bribery as long as they can convince a jury there's corrupt intent. I can guarantee you that there are juries all across this country that are going to find corrupt intent on those facts, why is, I don't think anybody has ever thought that was bribery. But why isn't, the, why isn't the requirement of proving corrupt intent an important limiting principle? It was ver- very, much, very much at issue in this mm-hmm. case. Uh, state of mind is commonplace in all criminal prosecutions. Uh, I don't understand why, in this particular instance, that element is so problematic as, as a limiting principle. Sure, for, for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. The first is that the Supreme Court has made clear that you don't want something as nebulous and amorphous as corrupt intent to be the sole thing that distinguishes entirely lawful conduct from entirely unlawful conduct. Uh, secondly, uh, secondly, Your Honor, the whole point of corrupt intent is to join, you know, as the saying goes, an evil hand with an evil mind. You want conduct that is otherwise inherently corrupt 
but also then done with a corrupt intent so that you save the innocent wrongdoer. You know, the, 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 the wrongdoer doesn't realize that what he's doing is wrong. But you don't take conduct that is otherwise inherently okay and convert it into a crime based on such a nebulous concept of corrupt intent, because then what you really are doing is converting it into a thought crime. And to come back to where I started, you particularly don't do that in the context of you know, vague statutes like this that are enacted against the backdrop of history when they can't find a single case in all of American history anywhere that satisfies their theory. And it's not because this fact pattern is so rare. It's not because this almost never happens. This type of thing has been happening since the beginning of time. Judge Lynch, yes, they do you can't have find us. Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure I uh, agree with your. <clears throat> it converts it into a thought crime. Let me give you some hypotheticals using uh, your example. Um, guy wants to get his son into a school an anonymous school. We don't need to name names. Um, school says, sorry, he doesn't meet our admission criteria. He says, okay, I'm going to make a $150 million donation. Will you let my kid in under those circumstances? If you will, I'll make the donation. If you won't, I won't. Um, is that corrupt intent. Your Honor, uh, I would say that, the, you know, I, I, my honest answer is I don't know. I would say that there are plenty of juries who would say yes, and there are plenty of juries who would say no. And that's why you don't have an otherwise perfectly legitimate transaction, the legality of that, turn on such a nebulous concept as corrupt intent. And that's why in uh, cases no, like... Okay, I always thought corruption, um, at least in this context, actually turned on some notion of deception. Um, the example I gave you involved no deception whatsoever. It was all very upfront. Um, uh, so do you think, and Congress didn't define corrupt intent. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some concerns about fair notice to people of what in this situation corrupt intent involves. Um, but then if we have the question of deception, it's deception of whom? Um, is it deception by the agent of the principal? Mm -hmm. um, Your Honor, you can know, I tweak um, your hypothetical slightly that helps illustrate the point? I wish you would. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I'll take your hypothetical as it is, but then I'll say that the head of the admissions office says, deal, $150 million for our new wing on the library. I'm going to let your kid in. Then Wynn gets out that this has happened. It becomes quite scandalous. Uh, a mid-level official from the admissions office comes forward and says, we never do that. We never consider donations and admissions. And then the district court judge excludes all evidence to the contrary. That's essentially what happened in this case. But that, that's, that's helpful for purposes of figuring out whether there needs to be a retrial. But I thought in this part of the conversation, you're trying to make the argument that if there is a retrial, it can't be under 666 or honest fraud bribery. You are correct, Your Honor. Okay, so as to those two points, <clears throat> one last hypothetical, at least from me. Same example, 
you go to the admissions dean of the school and you say, I'd like to get my child in. Admissions dean says, well, we need you to pay us something. Okay, I'll pay you $100 million. And then the admissions dean says, well, let me see the child's application. And then looks at the application and says, I can't do it for this. And then the person who's making the deal says, well, how about this? Why don't we just fake the numbers, give some fake test scores, and then goes ahead with the deal. No corruption in that instance? Your Honor, there's certainly no bribe in, in, under our theory, because there the money is right, going to In the that school. instance, there's no... I understand that point. I'm just saying, in that instance, we have the, it would seem to me, pretty evident basis for a jury finding corruption without that being a particularly hard thing to figure out. It's clearly against the fiduciary duty of the admissions officer. Mm -hmm. It's clearly being brought about by a quid pro quo deal designed to influence the admissions officer to do that corrupt act. And the only thing then that seems to distinguish it is that the payment happens to be going to the principal. So maybe you're right that under 666 you just have to read it that Mm -hmm. way, but you, so you have a response I, I, to that. I, I that completely point. agree that that kind of deception goes to corrupt intent. But what I disagree with is that corrupt intent can be the thing that converts otherwise legitimate conduct into illegitimate conduct. Uh, because the Supreme Court has made quite clear in cases like McDonald that you want the underlying, you know, more substantive objective elements of the crime to be what distinguishes an evil hand from an unevil hand, and corrupt intent ensures that you've joined an evil mind with an evil hand. The last point I would make on that, Your Honor, is, uh, and I know that this is shifting more to the evidentiary issue, at the very least, then, you need to let us put in the evidence that shows that whatever bad things they claim were going on really were within the context of a system that allowed that type of thing to go on. And here the judge excluded all of that kind of evidence. So on that issue, uh, let me ask you this. Um, I understand that um, you had planned, I gather, to call some officials of the University of Southern California. By By asking questions of them directly, you could have tried to establish that there was a culture at the university that embrace the very kind of conduct that's at issue here so that your client would have understood that what he was doing was was legitimate. Uh, You apparently chose not to call those witnesses, which would have allowed you to directly pose the relevant questions to them instead of having to rely upon questionable efforts to impeach a witness of the university in a way that raised all yeah. sorts of hearsay issues. I'm, I'm puzzled why you did not, in a way that could have avoided all these evidentiary issues, call university officials so that you could have examined directly the very issue that you wanted to, to probe. And that's a great question, Your Honor. And I think that it also reflects uh, a misunderstanding of how this unfolded before the trial court. Because we actually did try to call live witnesses. But Judge Gorton repeatedly ruled that it was irrelevant unless John Wilson had personal knowledge of what they're going to testify to. I'll give you a very concrete example. Uh, There's a Title IX roster analysis in the record. You can find it at page 212 of the sealed appendix. This was an official document that examined the various sports team rosters to assess Title IX compliance. And on it, it had this notation 
with respect to three uh, members of the golf and tennis team. Significant donors' sons on roster, practices only, unique scenario for this year. We tried to call two officials from the Office of the President, Office of Athletic Compliance, to the stand who would have uh, attempted to introduce this as a business record. Judge Gordon excluded that. And here's what he said. This is at page 65 of the addendum. Defendants proffered no evidence to suggest they had any knowledge of the students referred to in the document at issue or their admissions processes. As the court has repeatedly ruled, such evidence is irrelevant to the charges at issue. It underscores that he was not ruling on hearsay grounds. He was ruling on relevance grounds. He repeatedly refused to allow us to call live witnesses, and that's why we didn't call the live witnesses. Last um, bucket of issues, unless my colleagues have anything further on this, is could you just address the two tax convictions? The two tax convictions. Yes, Your Honor. And our, our basic point is that if you agree with us on any of the other things, we're at a minimum entitled to a new trial on the tax count, too, uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is that all of the other issues go directly to corrupt intent on the tax count. Remember, tax, tax fraud is the highest form of corrupt intent known to the law. Here, if John Wilson believed that uh, the, the donations were legitimate... But, but, but I, this is where I'm a little puzzled. If he thought there was a quid pro quo for them, how could have he thought it was legitimate to take the donation? Because, Your Honor, nobody reduces the fair market value of a charitable donation by, I'm sorry, the value of a charitable donation by the fair market value of the so-called admissions boost. Nobody does that because when, it's Even when there's an express quid pro quo? Uh, y yes, Your Honor. And nobody does that because it's impossible to calculate that. It's not like it's, it's okay. a secret that this And then happens. what about the business consulting services sure. deduction? Could I finish my answer to the first part, if I, if I could? We actually tried to call a witness that would have established that very point. We tried to call an official from the yeah. USC uh, the, the USC. You don't have a challenge on that evidentiary point. Before. Excuse me? You didn't raise that challenge, did you? Yes, we did. Oh, you did? Okay. Yes, we did. And uh, we tried to call that witness who would have testified that uh, USC never advises donors, whether they're backdoor donors, side door donors, or front door donors, to reduce the donation by the value of the admissions boost because it's simply too hard to calculate. And Judge Gorton, again, excluded that evidence. And you raised that challenge irrelevant. on appeal? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we discussed it. I think it's discussed okay. at, at length in our reply brief. Or not at length. It's discussed in our reply brief. In your reply brief? Yeah. Both briefs. Okay. Both briefs, Your Honor. Uh, so Business consulting services. Business consulting. Again, it goes directly to corrupt intent. And this was the first point I was trying to make. If John Wilson thought that this was a legitimate charitable donation, then the only mistake he made was by deducting it as a business expense instead of a charitable donation. That was a footfall that saved him about $1,400 on a million-dollar tax bill, and he couldn't have even known that at the time the deduction was taken. So with respect, I don't think there's any chance that a jury would have found corrupt intent on that. At the very least, it shows how the corrupt intent evidence infected the tax count, too, and requires a reversal of the tax count. Again, I, again, I think it's similar to the Martinez case, Your Honor, where you were addressing similar issues with respect to a misjoinder. And when the critical issue in a case is corrupt intent, and here that was the critical issue on each one of these substantive counts, when you have evidentiary problems and other problems that infect corrupt intent on other counts, it necessarily infects corrupt intent on this type of count, too. 
I also and, think we have a straight-up Yates error, Your Honor. We have a straight-up Yates error because the jury could have concluded that uh, John Wilson you know, committed, paid a bribe and he tried to deduct a bribe. Or it could have concluded that he made a fraudulent payment property, uh, on the property issue and he tried to deduct a fraudulent payment. And therefore, if he tried to deduct a bribe or a fraudulent payment, he necessarily committed tax fraud too. We don't know which of those theories the jury adopted. So it's a straightforward Yates error as well, which would entitle us to a new trial. Anything further from either of my colleagues? No. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you Your Honor. Good afternoon. May it please the court. Joshua Sharp for Appellant Abdelaziz. May I reserve one minute for rebuttal? Yes. I'm going to address evidentiary error and briefly venue, but before I do so, two quick points from the discussion before. First, on interdependence, uh, Your Honor mentioned there was evidence of a referral in Mr. Wilson's case. There is no evidence of a referral. If I'm understanding the record, from at least this is just from the government's briefing, they seem there to rely, with respect to your client, for interdependence on the statement, I love it or love it. Is that right? I believe that, I believe that is what they're relying on, Your Honor. Um, I'll address that point. Um, there was zero evidence in the record that showed that my client knew the quote-unquote side door extended beyond USC. All he knew was that uh, Rick Singer could help his daughter, Sabrina, get into USC in exchange for a donation. That, I don't believe, addresses interdependence. Uh, the fact that he knew that maybe other parents were going to be using similar profiles for uh, practice players going to US to USC doesn't implicate him in, this, in what the prosecution called this coast-to-coast nationwide conspiracy. That included Bruce Isaacson, Huneus, Kaplan, and all of those guys were cheating on the SAT, too. And, and I, I took... Oh, go ahead. What, what about the uh, photograph? There's discussion of that. Now, I understand there is a dispute of fact about how that might have come about, but wasn't that dispute all put before the jury? Your, Your Honor, with respect to the photograph, there, there's a, a couple issues. The record shows that my client sent something like 45 or 50 pictures to Singer for, for a profile that he thought would be for Sabrina to get in as a practice player. And one of the pictures was from one of her games but was not... Sabrina herself. It was one of her teammates. And that's the picture that Rick Singer used in this profile. And they're hanging a lot on that. They're saying that he sent a picture of somebody who wasn't his daughter to, which doesn't, doesn't make much sense. Of course, if he saw the, the profile, which we, we can test he didn't see it, that's very disputed. We think but that counsel, was, wasn't there evidence that other members of the conspiracy did that kind of thing? They would submit photographs of athletic performance that were not photographs of the prospective candidates. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I was going to say, so um, now that could play into your prejudicial spillover argument. I understand that. But there was evidence that that kind of uh, ruse, if you will, was taking place in the scheme. Is that not so? There was absolutely evidence of that, but my client didn't know anything about it, and there was no evidence in the record to suggest that he did, and that's why the spillover prejudice was so devastating in this case. They didn't just, uh, it, wasn't, it, wasn't a three, it wasn't a two-day trial, it was a three-week trial. They just didn't play the tapes and sit down. They wanted the jury to hear those tapes in the context 
of Isaacson, who admitted that he was a fraudster, he was cheating on the SAT, of Huneus, who was cheating on the SAT, of Gordon Kaplan, who was having his daughter cheat on the SAT and pretending that she was a special needs kid who needed extended time. So all of the, the evidence against my client was seen in the context of these bad acts of other parents, an avalanche of evidence of bad acts of other parents. Um, moving on to the, the USC, uh, one more point, actually, Your Honor. Um, you addressed why we didn't call more USC folks. As uh, Mr. Francisco said, Judge Gorton did quash five trial subpoenas to USC folks we wanted to call, all on rev- relevance grounds. But I thought there were two witnesses that were not subject to that ruling that you could have called and chose not to. Your Honor, uh, Alexandra Riesman and uh, Scott Waldzniak, it's, it's in our brief, the number right. of folks that he, that he quashed. But there were, there were multiple rulings quashing subpoenas. He just referred to two of them. Um, the, the court said in the Womet case that the, that the trial judge has to allow the defense to present their case and, and doesn't, can't make them call witnesses in order to um, make it so he doesn't have to make a difficult evidentiary ruling. And in this case, the evidentiary rulings were not very difficult at all, respectfully. The government presented one-sided evidence that USC's admissions process was spotless, that money did not matter, and the only consideration was in merit. That narrative was false, but Judge Gorton excluded every single defense exhibit on that topic and then quashed every trial subpoena, all on relevance grounds. Magistrate Judge Kelly stated succinctly what the evidence showed, that it is a viable assertion that USC had a practice of admitting kids in exchange for donations who are athletic walk-ons. And the rest of her comments are in sealed appendix Yes, I understand your concern about relevance, but he also ruled on hearsay grounds. And it seems to me there might have been some basis for his hearsay concerns so that if you were trying to establish that there was a culture in which it was understood that for these donations, students who did not have the requisite qualifications would still be admitted to the extent that there were references and email communications from individuals who were not testifying at trial. It would be important to know whether they meant what they said, whether if the truth of the matter asserted was the university has this kind of culture, then it would be important to know whether they were serious when they said that. Was it a joke? And so that kind of evidence was being admitted for the truth of the matter asserted, which I think was Judge Gordon's point. Why, why is he wrong about that? Your Honor, I think that Judge Gordon was very clear at the beginning of the case, before the case even started, that he was excluding everything on relevance because anything that these gentlemen didn't know was not relevant to their intent. As to the hearsay issue, there were a number of exceptions to hearsay. Uh, Again, we tried to call five witnesses, and Judge Gorton quashed the five trial subpoenas. Certainly, we could have examined those witnesses about the documents, but all of our trial subpoenas were quashed. And again, there were some difficult evidence. I don't believe they were difficult evidentiary rulings, but with respect to the USC chat, I don't believe it's hearsay. Judge Gorton said you could call these people, and maybe it'll come in that way. But the Womet case is very clear. The judge doesn't say, you know, I don't want to make an evidentiary ruling. Call the witnesses instead. He had to make the correct evidentiary ruling on that point. Um, and the excluded evidence is directly relevant to show the reasonableness of these defendants' good faith belief that USC welcomed these donations. If their belief was reasonable, it was more likely to be genuinely held. And if it was genu- genuinely held, they should have been acquitted. That's the Litvak case from the Second Circuit. It was also admissible to impeach the false testimony of the USC admissions officer 
who was allowed to testify uncontroverted that USC did not consider money and admissions. And this all happened. Do you want to, I don't want you to not get to the other issue that you were going to talk about, which was venue. Venue, Your Honor, yes. I would just note that in the Corey case, briefly, uh, Judge Saris faced these exact same evidentiary issues. She let in evidence of the uh, athletic department and the admissions department practices, mm-hmm. including documents, and the defendant was acquitted. But, but before you get to venue, I, I, I realize what Judge um, Lynch said about double jeopardy not being directly before us in some sense, though I think sometimes courts have entered an order of acquittal at the appellate stage. The reason I ask is it's partly relevant to what we would need to decide if we were to conclude that there was a variance and that there was prejudicial spillover, um, at least as to the conspiracy counts, which are the only ones in your case. Yes. And in that instance, we only need to decide venue, and we only need to decide, at least for purposes of your case, whether 666 can be charged, whether there's money and property fraud, etc., if there's going to be a new trial. So how are we supposed to think about what we're supposed to do in terms of how much we need to decide um, if the consequence of a prejudicial variance in a case like this is that it just inevitably gives rise to a double jeopardy problem? Your Honor, I, I, do, I do believe that it does give rise to a double jeopardy problem, specifically with respect to, to venue. The First Circuit hasn't, hasn't addressed this particular point, but the, the Fifth, Circuit, Fifth Circuit case strain 407 F3rd 379 was sound that when venue isn't proven, double jeopardy has attached. If that's what Your Honor is asking. No, I'm asking whether I have to decide the objection you're making about venue or the arguments you're making about bribery and 666 and honest services fraud. If the fact of the prejudicial spillover from the variance given the finding of insufficiency of the evidence, if we were to so find as the broader conspiracy, necessitates double jeopardy on the conspiracy counts. Okay. Um, haven't thought through that okay. entirely, well, you haven't but, been, but, but I, believe, that, I believe that if you entered a judgment of acquittal, then you wouldn't need to reach the other issues. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> I guess I'm asking, do we have to issue the judgment of acquittal? Because what has been said, which is totally possible, that we send it back for a new trial, but then when it goes back for a new trial, you file a motion for double jeopardy. Right. And if that's going to be granted, and if it has to be granted because that's the legal answer, then I wonder a little bit about why I'm trying to figure out all the things that should be happening on that retrial if legally it can't happen. And I have exactly the same question. It occurred to me during the uh, discussion with your co-counsel. Well, I think the answer there is that the, the venue issue and whether there would be a judgment of acquittal is... No, 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 no. We're not... Uh, get off venue. Okay. Um, we have some very serious questions about how to interpret 666 and uh, 1346. And if you win on Kodiakos and we find there's spillover prejudice and it has to go back and it goes back and inevitably double jeopardy prevents the government from bringing these sorts of charges again, why would we have to decide the 666 and the 1346 questions? 
It's because I don't think that it's inevitable that double jeopardy will preclude bringing these charges, again, especially with evidentiary spillover. There's a lot of... Okay, stop. I don't want you arguing against your client's interests. Nobody has really briefed this to us. I'm going to withdraw (laughs) my question. Okay, very well. Um, But assuming there was a variance, we do believe he was prejudiced because there was no venue for any separate conspiracy between him and Singer. Nothing related to his conspiracy took place in Boston. All the government points to are calls in late 2018 and early 2019 and a check in early 2019. All three events occurred after Singer became a government agent and after his daughter matriculated at USC. The government says there was a continued conspiracy to conceal. So maybe it was one last question. This would, if you're right about this, then the, the Resolution is that the indictment has to be dismissed. That's right, Your Honor. Yeah, and if you're wrong about this, then presumably, at least for present purposes, you're saying maybe the indictment doesn't have to be dismissed, correct? If there's evidentiary spillover, the indictment has to be dismissed. It does have to be dismissed? Yes, Your Honor. The indictment has to be dismissed? I believe so. so and the retrial then is only if they issue a new indictment? I believe so, and then, then there would become a double jeopardy issue at that time. Well, then that goes to the question of why we need to decide some of these other questions, which I thought you didn't have a view about. I think you do need to decide the the other issues, because it depends on what the indictment says, the next indictment says. Well, counsel, I assume you're... If you you said double jeopardy, then you wouldn't get to that question, right? It it may or or may... I think it's unclear, which is why I think you need to reach the other issues. Just the path. I was going to say, I, I mean, I gather, you know, if we if we decide, well, if we decide that this charge of a single overarching conspiracy uh, created, um, I guess your position would be insuperable prejudicial spillover. Uh, the case could not go forward with the same indictment that charged the single overarching conspiracy. Is that, is that, that I assume that's your position, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. Which means we don't need to decide the venue issue if you win on the evidentiary spillover. Your Honor, I, I believe that the double jeopardy issues may be different between venue and evidentiary spillover. Yeah, but in any event, we wouldn't have to decide... The, ven- the consequence of deciding venue is that you dismiss the indictment. Right. And you're saying the consequence of evidentiary spillover is that you dismiss the indictment. Right. If, if you actually, so for you my know. purposes, if why do I need to decide the venue question separately if there's a basis for evidentiary you, spillovers leading to the dismissal of the indictment? Yeah. Is there a reason? I, I understand your question, Your Honor. Would we be able to give some supplemental briefing on this point? There was... 100 pages of briefing in this case. Maybe, but this we'll, 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 we can tell you whether we want supplemental briefing. Okay, thank you. Let me ask, please, if I might, just yeah. let me ask you this. I, and this may be way off base, I acknowledge this, but there is a, uh, I'm thinking of the amicus brief filed by a number of uh, former U.S. attorneys. Uh, it seems to me that the logic of their argument is that as an initial proposition, quite apart from any issues of evidentiary insufficiency at trial with respect to the single overarching conspiracy, 
seems to me their position is that ab initio, under Kodiakus, a conspiracy charge like this should never have been brought, that it is inherently so broad that prejudicial spillover is inevitable. I phrase that because we've been very focused, understandably, on the question of a single overarching conspiracy. In fact, perhaps what was proven here were a number of individual conspiracies, and that raises the variance issue, and then if there was a variance, you have to assess whether that's prejudicial. But I'm wondering if there isn't a more fundamental argument available to you, and perhaps you're making it, perhaps you're not, but, but that is that under Kodiakus, a conspiracy charge like this simply cannot be brought as a, as a proposition of law, so that it's not a matter, ultimately, of evidentiary insufficiency. Was one, was one conspiracy proven, or were multiple individual conspiracies proven? This kind of conspiracy simply, under the law, primarily based on Kodiakus, this kind of conspiracy cannot be charged. Is that your position? Your Honor, that, that is our position. I think we make both positions, that it can't be charged and that the evidence was insufficient. And that's why we filed a motion to dismiss that said, based on these, you know, the facts alleged in the indictment, you can't have a conspiracy. Now, the trial judge said, well, we'll see what the evidence shows. Right. And then afterward, when all the evidence came in, when the Rule 29, we said there was no... Uh, there was no single conspiracy proven, and the government's response was to say, well, we've been over this already, because Judge Gorton ruled that there was sufficient, uh, there, was a, suffi- there were sufficient allegations. Judge Gorton didn't address whether the evidence was sufficient for a single conspiracy in this case. Counsel, um, motions to dismiss indictments almost never succeed, and that is because the law is very, very strict, Uh, about leaving those questions to a matter of proof. So um, I understood the U.S. attorneys not to be saying uh, the motion to dismiss the indictment should have been granted, but once the, the government shows its hand and shows the type of evidence it does, it then became clear it was a rimless conspiracy um, and should not have gone forward. And the U.S. Attorney's Office knew what evidence it had before it brought these charges. And as a matter of good prosecutorial practice, they shouldn't have proceeded. But that's a different question than the law on dismissing indictments. Yes, Your Honor. In fact, it was a questionable uh, conspiracy from the very beginning, but by bringing this case, that allowed to bring to, to allow them to bring in this avalanche of evidence of other people's bad intent. And then, of course, on appeal, they'll argue that it's simply harmless error, but that's what their entire case centered around. There was very little okay. evidence. Okay. Thank you. Them. Thank you. Attorney DeCeventis, please come to the podium and introduce yourself. (laughs) 
Good afternoon. May it please the court. Alexia DiVincentis for the United States. I'd actually like to begin, uh, if I may, with the question of remedy on, on which uh, counsel just ended. Uh, because it's been suggested that nobody briefed that issue. But in fact, someone did brief that issue. The government briefed that issue. We specifically pointed out that in the defendant's opening brief, they asked for a new trial and nothing more. And in response to the government making that point, the defendants didn't come back in their reply brief and well, yeah, walk away that, from that, the notion that, of... That, that, that's true. I think the difficulty, and I'm thinking, of, is I think it's the Burks case that, that's throwing me off, which is that when you ask for a new trial, it's not clear to me that's a waiver of a right to bring a motion for double jeopardy on remand. And so if that's so, given the various significant issues that we're being asked to resolve. Now, it's a little bit complicated here because we've got consolidated cases and we've got substantive counts. And the substantive counts probably aren't impacted by the... If there's a double jeopardy issue, these probably don't fall out even if the conspiracy counts might. So it may be that we don't save ourselves very much time because we have to decide those questions with respect to the substantive counts in the, other, in the Wilson case. But that aside, the, the, I understand the government's briefing, and it, it's, um, I, I follow it, and you're dead right that you address the issue in it. But the question is whether the fact that they said that they want a new trial precludes them from seeking double jeopardy on remand. And my understanding is it's not clear that it does, and as such, what we then have here is just a question of, is there double jeopardy or not? Insofar as it's something we should reach. Maybe it's something we shouldn't, and we should just leave it. The, the reason I asked about it is whether it would save us from having to resolve some issues that we don't need to decide. Whether or not the defendants in requesting new trial have waived the right to raise the double jeopardy uh, question on remand this court's decision in Spitz specifically takes on the double jeopardy yeah, question. Yeah, but Spitz is an awfully strange case because it emphasizes that in De Los Santos there was a conclusion that the conspiracy, the broader conspiracy, does not exist. Not that it was a failure of proof, but it just keeps saying it does not exist. And as the dissent pointed out, it seems like De Los Santos is making a one-off distinction from the typical case in which you have a broader conspiracy charged there's a variance, and then all you prove is a subset of the narrower conspiracy. And when that happens, the suggestion has been, and De Los Santos does, Spitz does not reject this notion, that it may be that you preclude a new trial because of double jeopardy. Your Honor, again, this particular argument has not been raised by the defendants. No, it's not that. properly before this court at this time. And therefore, we believe that, yes, indeed, the court does need to go on and decide these other issues. Okay. And because we're on the topic of uh, counsel, if I may, um, first, I didn't read the briefs the way you do. Um, I read them as asking for acquittal or at the least a new trial. That is the statement there. So let's put waiver aside. And I read spits the same way. Okay, so we now have a practical question. Um, it is true, no one has briefed to us double jeopardy, but it is <clears throat> also worth asking if um, were, we were to buy the Kodiakos argument 
and the spillover argument and require this be sent back for both cases, be sent back for a new trial, hypothetically on all charges. Then, from the government's point of view, if double jeopardy would bar re-prosecution, do we need to reach these questions about interpretation of 666 and 1346? Your Honor, I, I admittedly feel a little ill-prepared to answer these questions because, again, this right, issue has not, not been briefed. But, Fine. but if what... Fine. What is clear, though, is even if there were uh, hypothetically a double jeopardy issue as to the conspiracy charges, we do still have substantive charges here that are at play. So I think the court either way needs to address. And that's uh, in, the the, Wilson, the in the Wilson case. Correct, yes. yes. Okay. Um, again, while we're on the topic of conspiracy, um, uh, applying the three Portela factors and taking the light in the, uh, excuse me, the evidence in the light most favorable to the government a rational jury could find the single overarching conspiracy charged in this indictment. And in arguing otherwise and suggesting that this case is on all fours with Kodiakos, the defendants variously understate and balkanize the evidence here while also overstating the evidence in Kodiakos. Well, counsel, beyond your, and I alluded to this in my question to opposing counsel, beyond the notion that all the parents had a stake in the success of Singer's um, scheme to the extent that one parent succeeded and then other parents might succeed. I mean, you argue that kind of interdependence. Other than that, what, what is the evidence of interdependence among the, the parents, the spokes of this conspiracy? What, what is the other evidence besides that? Uh, well, we think there are three key categories of evidence here, and it, the, the first relates to the money funnel. If you look closely at the reply briefs, the defendants avoid addressing that key category of evidence, the I'm evidence sorry, the, that... The money, the money what? Excuse me, the commingling of funds in KWF for the purposes of avoiding detection. Uh, that sort of commingling was not present in Kodiakos, and in fact, the but lower the co- court decision... Is the commingling you're describing just an artifact of giving the money each by each? Or is there any evidence of an intent to co-mingle so it wouldn't be discovered? Uh, well, these the defendants in this case, uh, there was evidence elicited by the defense that these defendants routinely made payments to charities and made them directly. Here, they chose to route the money through KWF, from which the but jury... Is that, could... But is there an indication of any kind that they did it because other parents were doing it and it would help the other parents not be found out? Bruce Isaacson testified that he understood not only that there was a commingling effect, but that the commingling of money from other parents with thick, complicated now, tax returns would have been Is there anything about either Wilson or Abdul Aziz of that same sort? Because Isaacson doesn't testify that either of them had that intention. That's correct. But a jury could infer that sophisticated businessmen like Wilson and Abdul Aziz, who in this case specifically chose to route money through mm-hmm. KWF rather than making those payments directly. I just, here's the, maybe you can help me if, if you just tackle this concern head on, which is we've said in other cases that it's concerning for sufficiency of the evidence if you have to pile inference on inference. And so I guess I just want to get from the government's perspective, why isn't that essentially what you're asking us to do here if we were to affirm 
the conviction against the sufficiency challenge as the broader conspiracy in other words they sent funds to one place other parents sent funds to one place a parent testified that i understood that was commingling and that would be helpful but this parent didn't so now i have to infer that's why they sent it to this thing each of these things seems like there's a many inferences one has to make to get to the intent to agree and yet we've got case law that says if you have to pile inference on inference, then it's not sufficient evidence because there's a concern it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, that a rational jury couldn't find beyond a reasonable doubt because it's too speculative. What, what's your answer to that basic objection, which I take it to be at the foundation of the sufficiency challenge? Sure. I, there are certainly inferences being drawn here, but we would reject the notion that it's inference upon inference upon inference in such a manner that the jury couldn't reasonably arrive at an understanding of these defendants' intent in joining this conspiracy. And if I may, I did want to also point out an additional key category of evidence here, and that is the evidence that parents were referring other parents. The defendants are dismissive of that evidence. Did, is there evidence that Abdul Aziz referred other parents? Specifically as to Abdul Aziz, any direct evidence? No. But what there was was evidence that what we're talking about here are more than just bare referrals. Johnny Wilson was put through the subco at the same time as Wyatt Driscoll at a time when Johnny Wilson... But, but I guess I'm just trying to figure... Maybe there's evidence of a nationwide conspiracy. You still have to prove evidence that these defendants agreed to be in it. Yes. And, and we, so the evidence that they agreed to be in it might be evidence that they did the kinds of things that would show interdependence. That would be a way of inferring that they participated in it. You, you, it's hard to say that just because they did something that doesn't show interdependence, they must have been in on it, just because other people had an interdependent conspiracy, right? We don't disagree that the right. evidence so had So what to- is the evidence, of, let's take them one by one, what is the evidence with respect to Abdul Aziz? that he agreed to the conspiracy that you're saying there's evidence of? Well, a few points on Abdulaziz. First, a, the evidence at trial showed that Singer's pitch here was so ingrained that law enforcement had trouble shaking him from it. And a standard part of that pitch was that Singer had done this many times before with many other people and had done so successfully. Add to that Abdulaziz's res, uh, response when told that his daughter's profile was going to be used for every fake basketball player going forward, his response being, I love it. And a jury could certainly infer that he knew and understood that other parents were participating in this conspiracy and that he, like many others, took comfort in that fact. Second. And would you have to infer not just that he was approving of that, but that he wanted it to be done? For interdependence purposes, I, I believe the defendant merely has to understand that the activities of other parents are advantageous to him. And we have that, again, in the sense of uh, evidence from which the jury could infer that Abdulaziz was welcoming the participation that of other parents. That wouldn't be relevant the, to common goal rather than interdependence? Excuse me? Wouldn't that, I thought that would show common goal rather than interdependence. And that you actually would have to show an agreement to be interdependent, not just that I am aware that other people are doing things that are helpful. Is that, am I wrong on that? Uh, you have to understand that the activities of other people are helpful and welcome that that help, essentially. And that's, again, what we have here uh, we, in the form of not only Aziz embracing the notion that other parents are involved, but, as I already mentioned, the fact that he specifically routed his money through KWF, from which the jury could infer. Uh, counsel, he, I, I thought he disputed that 
he ever knew that a fake profile was being submitted uh, on his daughter and that uh, was an inference you wanted the jury to draw. And so um, there are at least two inferences involved here. We would strongly disagree with that notion. Abdulaziz sought to dispute that he knew that a fake profile was being made for his daughter. But the bottom line is his daughter was being recruited as a D1 athlete in a sport that she hadn't played in two years and had never played particularly well. There's one way that that happens, and it's through fraud. And Abdulaziz knew that, again, as evidenced by his statement, I love it in response to being told that his profile was going to be used for other fake basketball recruits. And as further evidenced by his ready agreement to a lot to lie about an injury invented out of thin air to explain why his daughter hadn't shown up at basketball practice until lay the concerns of the admissions department. That is clear evidence of Abdulaziz's knowledge and intent. That well, his- that may be true for sufficiency with respect to the narrower conspiracy, but here we're trying to get evidence with respect to the broader. How does him making a point about helping to cover up his daughter, if that's the right way to read that evidence, um, having gotten into USC through a fraudulent means, show that he is part of the broader conspiracy. I understood Judge Lynch's question to uh, be going to a slightly different issue. But uh, coming back to Abdulaziz and the evidence that he joined this single overarching conspiracy, we've already talked about the tanking comfort in other parents and welcoming uh, the participation of other parents, the fact that he specifically chose to route his money through KWF, And further, uh, and this is an additional point uh, that I wanted to make in terms of the overall evidence on uh, on the single conspiracy, the evidence here showed more than just bare referrals. As I had started to say, Johnny Wilson was put through the subco at the same time as Wyatt Driscoll at a time when he was living with the Driscoll family while John Wilson was abroad. John Wilson was heard on on wiretap, or excuse me, one of the consensual calls, specifically asking Singer about a side door deal for his Brown. There was also evidence from which the jury could infer that Leslie Wilson was effectively guiding Marcy Pella through the side door process, and that Marcy Pellatella, presumably having learned from Leslie Wilson, then said to Singer, I'll bring you the right kind of people. I only tell people about you if they'd be good candidates. And what's the response to the... Uh, argument made by your opponent that bringing in customers doesn't show interdependence for this type of conspiracy. Because from the evidence that I've just described, the jury could infer that we're not just talking about bare referrals. We are talking about active recruitment and essentially vetting these people to make sure that they were the right kind of people, the kind of people that would come in and not balk at the nature of the side door scheme, but instead contribute to its overall success. And I do want to make one uh, an additional point because you've referred to customers and that's something we've heard a lot today here about the idea that these are essentially like drug users or in the brief somebody who walks into a pastry shop if nothing else is clear it, it should be this the one thing that there should be no doubt about is that these defendants were not mere customers the parents alleged in this indictment were sending pictures to be used in profiles they were editing their kids' essays to make sure they related to, they had essays relating to the sports that they were. But you're not describing these defendants. You're, you're describing other defendants at this point who were doing these things. These defendants did none of the things you just described. 
I mean, right? They did send pictures. They were involved in editing their children's essays and making sure that those essays included t- discussion of the sports that they were alleged their kids were allegedly being recruited to play. That, simply put, is not somebody who walks into a bakery shop and buys a pastry. That is somebody who walks in the back so, and rolls up their sleeves and is rolling Apple, out the dough. He, he said, "Well." I'll help my daughter write an essay in which she describes the basketball court as my art form or my artistry. I mean, that's the kind of thing that parents do all the time to try to help their kids write their essays. What parents don't do all the time is help them write essays about sports that they haven't played in two years in order to support their admission as fake athletes at Division One schools. You're, you, sir, oh. Judge, uh, if I may... Um, I did want to briefly address the notion of, of the variance because the burden here is the defendant's. Um, it is their burden to, uh, excuse me, show prejudice so pervasive that a miscarriage of justice looms, and uh, the defendants have failed to carry that burden. The evidence of the subset conspiracies was overwhelming, and not just as See, to the, the thing that's just concerning is that, and I and I understand how there's a. This isn't default the way you're arguing it. This is just, I think, endemic to the Kodiakus problem, which is that to prove that they agreed, you're relying heavily on things they didn't do. And then, if we conclude that's not enough to prove that they were part of the broader conspiracy, in order to show no prejudice, you say, but but that wasn't really that significant. <laughs> but yet, that seems like a big a big piece of, of what was before the jurors. And so I think the key thing would be how strong was the evidence of the smaller conspiracy. If that's, you know, extremely strong, then I think it's much harder for the defendants to be able to show Kodiakus prejudice. But if that evidence is itself not, you know, overwhelming, then, then that changes the calculation, doesn't it? Well, we agree that uh, a key part of the calculus is how strong the government's evidence against these defendants as to the individual subset conspiracies was. And that evidence was overwhelming. And again, not just as to the bare transactional details, as the defendants have tried to suggest in their reply briefs, but also as to these defendants' intent. I've already walked through the evidence as to Abdulaziz's intent, but just to briefly uh, discuss John Wilson... John Wilson was expressly told that the sport didn't matter and that Singer could sell his daughters as athletes. He was expressly told that both of his daughters couldn't go to Stanford because the Stanford sailing coach had to recruit some real sailors so that Stanford doesn't catch on. John Wilson laughed and Singer repeated, so that Stanford doesn't catch on. If what you are doing is participating in an above-board practice, there is no need to sell your kids as athletes that they aren't, and there is no need to worry about Stanford catching on. The evidence in this case was overwhelming. Can you, unless my colleagues have further questions about the variance and evidentiary spillover, if you could just turn to the honest services fraud 666 issue and money and property mail fraud and I think we really need you to address all three if I'm following what's it, what's on the table here. Uh, sure. Unless Your Honor has a different preference, I'd like to begin, I suppose, with bribery. Um, but def- when you say bribery, are you talking about 666 or 364? We're talking about both, really. Because in the context of skilling, 
the Supreme Court specifically recognized that in giving shape to 1346, one looks to the federal bribery statutes. Those include 666. But did they, so in our did, view, was, did they refer to 666 in Skilling? They referred to 201, yeah, which 20, is the sister statute to 666, yeah, essentially. But, but let, let's then do it this way. Let's stick with 201 and anything else. And keep, for my purpose, it would be helpful if you made the honest services fraud argument independent of the text of 666. If you, if you think that that's a mistake and the only way to win is that you have to rely on 666 text for honest services fraud, that's fine. But insofar as you think you can win, even if honest services fraud doesn't pick up the text of 666, that would be helpful for me to hear what the government's argument is. Do you follow? I, I do. And our position has been that given the guidance of the Supreme Court in Skilling, for purposes of 1346, one does look to the federal bribery statutes. 201 was specifically cited, but the yep. text of 666 and 201 are not... Well, 201 is not going to raise the issue of whether the payment goes to the employer. 666 raises that issue. Am I right or wrong? I'm, I'm not sure I follow, Your Honor. I think the way 201 is written, you won't have the question that arises in a case like this under 666 where the payment could be made to the employer. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I, my understanding I, I, is that there was not a meaningful distinction in the, te- uh, the it, difference between the text of 666 and 201 in that regard. They're both effectively uh, prohibiting corruptly giving anything of value to Two. any person with the intent of influencing I thought it was any public agent. official in 201. Well, yes, but that's precisely why I'm yeah, but pointing that, to but 666. If it's two, but it's two, that's what I'm saying. Under 201, you don't have a textual basis that would give rise to the problem under, that rises under 666, that they're saying it doesn't matter. Under 666, it doesn't fit. So if the question is, was there a basis pre-McNally in federal bribery law for thinking that there could be a bribe within the meaning of skilling for a payment to the employer, 201 isn't going to tell me, yes, there was, because it doesn't arise under 201. Do you, do you sure, see what I'm but, saying? But that's precisely why I think 666 is... The more helpful but that's statute what I'm to saying. be looking is at. Is the here. government's position that you can only win under 364 if we say we look to 666 for the content of what a bribe is under honest services fraud? We have, we have always conceived of the 1346 and 666 charges as essentially asking the same question in terms of whether something can constitute a bribe. Um, and it, it, in our view, it is clear under the text of that statute that what happened here was bribery. The defendants well, was, paid, the text of the, when, was the text of 666 as it's presently in place, even at, in place at the time of McNally? At the time of McNally, I'm not certain about that, Your Honor. Um, but it was certainly in place at the time of Skilling uh, when the court was saying that. But the, I thought Skilling referred to the pre-McNally bribery law. It, it did in order to determine But then we whether, should look at innovations that occurred after McNally in federal bribery law to figure out what the content was under honest services fraud? I, I mean, maybe that's your position, but I just was curious whether there was a separate position, which is that even setting aside 666, sort of generic bribery can encompass payment to the principal. Well, sure. Generic bribery, bribery certainly could, well, could encompass. Well, what's that argument? Because the argument on the other side is that history shows it's never happened. 
due process and lenity concerns would say it would be concerning to construe it to happen, absent Congress being expressed that it's happened. What's the answer to that? Well, the defendants very much here want to point to the absence in the law of any on point factual, factually on point case. But bribery is and always has been about third party payments made to induce someone to violate their duties to the principal. The defendant's money here was paid to incentivize university insiders to abuse the power entrusted to them. That is the very essence of bribery, as Judge Lopez in his question suggested. That is classic bribery. And the defendants have failed to provide any basis for thinking that, given the clarity of what bribery means, that somehow the, the destination of the bribe money should matter. Bribery is about the corrupt inducement, not the form the corrupt inducement takes. Now, furthermore, going to 666, the defendants have failed to provide any textual basis for suggesting that 666 wouldn't encompass these bribes. Uh, They certainly can't find any basis for that in the case law that's interpreting anything for value. Uh, Can can you just help me understand your reading of 666? It says there has to be... um, uh, whoever corruptly gives to any person anything of value. Is your view that the person who received anything of value here is USC? In other words, is the school or is the person on your theory the agent? I th- it's unclear. Uh, well, what, what, in, is in your the- what is your theory? You're, you're the one trying to get the conviction. What is your theory of how how the statute was violated here. Money was paid to any person. Any person means any person. It doesn't exclude organizations. I didn't say that. I'm not asking that question. I want to know, in the government's view, who is the person who received the thing of value? Just under the statute, just walking through the elements. It says if whoever gives corruptly anything of value to any person, that's the first thing that has to be satisfied, is the government's view that in this case... The agent of the university was the person who got the thing of value, or is the government's view that the university is the person that got the thing of value? In the, in the government's view, it doesn't matter which of those things is the case. If anything of value, if, if the person who got it was the university, the outcome is the we, same. We, as here's, the, here, here's why it might matter. Let's take it, it's the university that's the person. Obviously, there was a thing of value. There was cash. Then we get to corruptly, and then there's quid pro quo, which then raises the question, what is the proof of the quid pro quo? And does there need to be some proof of private gain in order for there to be a quid pro quo? Alternatively, we could say the person who received it is the agent of the organization, but they obviously didn't receive anything of value in the terms of cash. What they got would be something that we'd call anything of value, which would be the benefit of knowing their employer received cash. That then raises a question under skilling. Is that the kind of thing that can be anything of value? So I think it does matter which of those theories we're adopting. And and the government hasn't spelled out which theory it's embracing or how I'm supposed to walk through the statute. If anything of value is given to... Excuse me. If any person is defined as the agent... The agent certainly got something here. What, was, what did they get? What did the agent get yeah. here? 
well, the evidence was clear that they derived value from payments that were made to university accounts. I thought you answered this question in your, in your brief. I mean, I, I understood your position to be that with respect to these defendants, there's no suggestion that they gave any cash to any of the agents. So they gave, what they, they gave their money to the university. Uh, and that, it's your position that the university qualifies as a person uh, under the statute. And then the, the, and that was done with the intent to influence here or reward an agent of an, of an organization. I thought it was your position that by giving that money to the university, a person, it was done with the intent to get the agent to facilitate this admissions process that is the heart of Singer's scheme. It, I, I, did, I, did I misunderstand? I thought that was the way in which you were arguing that this statute applies to the facts of this case. Did, did I misread your position? Uh, no, Judge Lopez, that's that's. No, no, no that I, I don't think that's what you said in your brief, and here, here's why. <laughs> that describes a gratuity, because there's no proof of quid pro quo in what was just described. But you conceded, because you had to, because in Fernandez we held it is a bribery statute that requires quid pro quo, not a gratuity, that there's got to be proof of quid pro quo. Correct? Yes. So I'm asking then, where is the quid pro quo coming from as you walk through the statute? If the payment was made to the university, if that's the thing of value that was exchanged, there's no exchange, it was just given. So there needs to be an exchange. That must come through the word corruptly. And then when I read corruptly for the quid pro quo, is it just that there was an agreement, you do this, I do that, or does there need to be proof of something that makes it corrupt? And typically in bribery we say proof of private gain. That's at least Black's Law Dictionary. So what would be the private gain here? Maybe you're saying that would be the you know, good feelings or perceived benefits that I would get from my employer down the line. I guess the question is, is that the type of thing that can qualify as a benefit or a private gain? Or if we do it the other way and the agent was the one who received the thing of value and the thing of value was the, that same thing, does that qualify as anything of value under the statute? But I think the government's got to have a view as to how we're supposed to apply these elements. Otherwise, you're just describing a gratuity. The payment to the organization did confer a gain on these individuals. Okay. As a factual matter, Donna Heinel's salary went up by over $100,000 during the time period in which she was accepting payments from Singer's clients into the accounts at USC that she controlled. As for Bavik, payments into the water polo accounts uh, enabled him to great, give greater opportunities better equipment, better travel opportunities to the water polo team that he had dedicated decades of his career to. Anything of value to any person has been read, anything of value has been read to, to be defined by reference to the value that a person subjectively attaches to the thing received. And consistent with that notion, payments to things like campaign funds or charities have been held to be bribes. And the 
the benefit that is being derived in those cases is no less derivative than than the benefit here, and yet it has been routinely held to qualify for purposes of bribery. Okay, last set of questions. If you could just address the money or property issue. Yes, Your Honor. Supreme Court case law has routinely defined property as extending to every valuable right and interest, and in looking to determine whether or not something fits the bill, uh, the court has traditionally looked to two factors, exclusivity and economic value. There's no doubt in this case that the universities had the exclusive right to determine who could attend the universities, and there could be no serious dispute that the admission slots had economic value because the defendants here paid rather handsomely for them. The defendants in their reply brief has suggested that somehow this was nevertheless not property because the university's interest in them was not economic. But, of course, that is belied by the very nature of their defense in this case. The entirety of the defense was that in extending admission slots, the university wasn't just concerned with academic or athletic talent. It was also (coughs) concerned with finances, and that is what the evidence showed Rebecca Chasen testified, in fact, that there was a VIP process uh, pursuant to which donations uh, would give students a a second look in the admissions process. And so in extending any given admissions off, uh, excuse me, in extending any given admission slot, the university effectively has a choice. They can prioritize athletic talent or academic ability, or they can prioritize money. But in either case, the university is, act, is making a business decision. To paraphrase the words of Cleveland, the universities in this case, unlike a state issuing licenses, has invested its labor and its capital, and it stands to gain or lose uh, according to the risk. What, what ca- do you have a case that I mean, you, you describe in, I guess, somewhat theoretical terms, why this should be regarded these admission slots as property. Do you have any case that actually supports that proposition? Well, I, th- I think perhaps on, on this particular score, Frost is, is the most informative because the point of Frost was to recognize that a business is a university, or excuse me, a university is a business. The university has invested vast sums of money to develop its physical and intellectual infrastructure. And a university, again, has put its labor and capital at risk. And in extending admission slots, they are, making, they are making a business decision. In fact, even to say that a university has an interest in the integrity of the admissions process is to recognize that the admissions process has business implications for the university. To, to what extent does your property argument depend upon the notion that University has a right to control the integrity of the process. And, and here, because of the deceptions that preceded these admission decisions, they effectively lost control over the admissions process. Is, is that concept of a right to control, is that critical to your argument that this, uh, these admission slots should be viewed as property? It depends how we're using the term right to control here. Uh, we're not using right to control in the sense that the Second Circuit has occasionally used it as uh, allowing the right to control itself to be a stand-in for property. 
However, here what we're talking about are admission slots that we conceive of as a traditional form of property. And insofar as that is the case, there's no dispute that the university then has the right to determine the terms on which it's going to part with that property. And I'll just point out that to the extent the governments in their reply brief have uh, attempted to suggest that only non-economic considerations can go to the heart of the bargain, uh, that is wrong. Uh, Non-economic considerations can go to the heart of the bargain, and that is deeply rooted both in the common law and in more modern cases, finding, for example, that one uh, can commit fraud by misrepresenting their minority or disadvantaged uh, business status in order to obtain government funding. The concern here, again, um, excuse me, non-economic considerations also went to the heart of the bargain here when we're talking specifically about See, the problem is in in the typical contracting case like that, I think Leahy and those type of cases, the, the, the thing there, and, and I understand if I'm reading it right, the Seventh Circuit seemed to treat it as if it was a property case. But under our case law, it would be more easily conceived of as a money case because the government pays money for the contract. That's what we said in Doherty with the job. So it's not obvious to me that those cases are rightly conceived of as property cases rather than money cases. And here, of course, the universities on the <laughs> offering side, it's not on the paying side. Well, so you can't rely on it. You can't make it a money case. It, I'm not saying yeah, it is. Not. I'm I not, yeah. Yeah. It's not obvious to me why the result should be any different depending on whether you're talking about money or property. In I mean, either just because of the words. Yeah. <laughs> in one case, it's money. In the other case, then you have to raise the question. There's no doubt cash is money. But is this thing property? But you, I, you, I understand your argument. Judge Lynch, do you have anything further? No, thank you. You want just one minute to 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 wrap up, or you don't have to take it. Um, well, I'd be happy to address any of the evidentiary questions if the court uh, would like me to. Otherwise, we are content. Yeah, to... I, I I would like yes. to explore that just a bit. I mean, what the we've been talking a lot about the the fairness of this trial. Um, the government was notably aggressive in trying to prevent the defendants from mounting what they characterize as a good-faith defense, which you acknowledge uh, is a proper defense, and if successful, uh, would have prevented conviction on the charges. Uh, I don't understand the argument, uh, although the trial judge focused on relevance, it seems to me in their efforts to establish, and there may be issues with, about, with how they went about it, but on the general proposition that it was highly relevant if at the University of Southern California there was a culture that promoted the kind of donations here in return for which students who were not qualified would nevertheless be admitted. If there was such a culture that extended through to all those involved in the selection process. I mean, that would be critical to the good faith defense, the notion that we were not doing anything wrong, that this is simply the way business was done. How can you defend an, uh, a conclusion that that evidence was not relevant? Again, putting, putting aside questions of the way in which that evidence might be entered, 
How can you argue that that evidence would not be relevant? I don't understand that. I think a lot of the evidentiary uh, disputes in this case can actually be resolved by what the district court early on recognized, but the defendants still don't want to accept, which is that this case was sorry, not... They don't, they don't want... ...to accept. This case was not about whether USC gave preferential admissions treatment in exchange for donations. This case was about the defendant's very different choice to falsely represent their student, their, their children's athletic abilities and to pay money to induce an insider to make that happen. And it, once one recognizes what well, the relevant just, on, fiduciary on, on duty... On that point, if, if I'm reading the jury instructions correctly, there was not a requirement on the bribery counts to prove that anything done was done falsely. I thought there was only requirement to prove the quid pro quo and that the quid pro quo was concealed. I, are you, as Your Honor, referring? If you're referring to the 1346 counts, um, I'm just referring to the jury instructions for anything relating to bribery. I didn't see in those any requirement that the jury find false passing off. I thought they only had to find that there was a quid pro quo and concealment of the quid pro quo. I, I, to, I agree to a certain extent. The jury instructions on honest services fraud effectively required the, the court instructed the jury that it had to find a scheme to defraud the university of the right. Yeah, to but with respect to the bribe part of it, they didn't have to find that part of the bribe was that there was falsification. And so you could read those instructions to say that the defrauding part was the concealment of the bribe. You, you were just suggesting that in this case the jury had to find that there was falsification of the profile of the athlete. But I didn't see the instruction requiring the jury to find that. Well, I, I, I think that in order to find that USC has been defrauded of the right of the honest services of Why its employees it by way of a mere... I, th I thought you could just find that there had been a concealment of the bribe. The concealment of the bribe was evidence of the fact that the payment was corrupt. The concealment of the bribe yeah, but was... Okay, I got it. Returning to the evidentiary issues, um, it, it has been noted that the, the defendants could, did have many ways to put in this USC evidence if they wanted to. They, they had various uh, witness, potential witnesses available to them who didn't call the Fifth Amendment and who had relevant information about the relevant fiduciary duties in this case. They could have called... Brunald, the dean of admissions, they could have called Brennan, the associate dean of, of admissions, and so on. What they chose instead to do was to attempt to introduce documents laden with hearsay and on that dry record confuse issues about the distinction between the VIP process and the subco process. But, but and it seems to me that the, the judge may have made rulings that suggested to the defendants that if they called some of these witnesses... The judge would say, well, if the, if the defendants did not know about the practices that these witnesses were describing, if they were not aware of the content of these emails, that that's, that's not relevant. And I don't understand that because it's, it seems to me the theory of the defendants was that what these witnesses could testify to would confirm what Singer was saying to them, that... This is the way the school does business. Uh, they expect 
individuals such as you such as you to contribute large sums of money in order to enhance the likelihood that their, their, their children will be admitted. And so whether they knew about the specifics of what those witnesses might say strikes me as quite irrelevant, given their theory that that evidence would confirm what Singer was telling them about this culture. So, I, so it seems to me that those views of the judge would suggest to the defendant, what's the point of calling these witnesses? The judge is not going to allow them to testify to the kind of evidence that we want to elicit. Is that a, do I have an incorrect view of what the judge was, was basically telling the defendants? I think it's um, incorrect to suggest that the judge was requiring knowledge of the evidence itself. The judge was merely, for good faith purposes, requiring knowledge of the uh, practices that the evidence allegedly demonstrated. And the relevant well, they got that through Singer. That's basically what Singer was telling them. This, this, is, this is the way we do business. Uh, so they, again, the defendants wanted this evidence to confirm what they say Singer was telling them in support of their position that we thought everything we were doing here was okay because it's the way the university does business. What they say Singer was telling them, but they failed to any, adduce any evidence of Singer telling them. There is a question of conditional relevance here. One does not get to put on evidence that would tend to show the objective reasonableness of a subjectively held good faith belief without first putting on evidence of that subjectively held good faith belief. And you can't point to evidence that you're not aware of in order to establish the subjectively held good faith belief. Thank you. Please reintroduce yourself. Your Honor, uh, three quick points. First, I'd like to take on directly Judge Leip as your last line of questioning with counsel. I think by my count, we tried to call at least five USC witnesses to testify live to these issues. Here are the rulings. This was with respect to uh, Reisman and Juan Zilak. Addendum page 38. As this court has ruled on previous occasions, testimony concerning the general fundraising practices at, UF, at USC is not relevant. Uh, with respect to the VIP process, we tried to call Gonzalez. Addendum 49. As a general matter, testimony with respect to the VIP admission process at USC is irrelevant. Uh, addendum 49. With respect to the tax issue, the tax treatment of donations unrelated to unknown, uh, unknown to the defendants is not relevant. And finally, to the Title IX analysis that I talked about earlier, as the court has repeatedly ruled, such evidence is irrelevant to the charges at issue. Uh, Judge Gorton was making precisely the error, Judge Lopez, that you were putting your finger on, and frankly, he was doing it at the behest of the government. Uh, so I think that you fully understand the evidentiary issues. That's point one. Point two, uh, on Kodiakus, the referrals. Kodiakus itself was replete with referrals. Here, uh, nobody referred Bruce uh, Isaacson. Nobody referred Lori Laughlin. Nobody referred uh, Huneus. Uh, John Wilson did not make any referral to Mr. Abdelaziz. The two have never met each other apart from in the context of this criminal prosecution. So that simply cannot be the case. And here, the error was enormously prejudicial because the entire case turned on corrupt intent. Did these two gentlemen 
Just on the threshold thing, that the government made the point that it wasn't just a referral, but it was, I'm finding you the right kind of people. So, so what, in other words, that suggests I have an idea what you're after, and these will be helpful to you in what you're after. So, well, why wouldn't that be yeah, so enough for, not, the, for, the, for the nationwide conspiracy point? I would make two points. One, that is exactly the type of referral that you had going on in Kodiakus. They were referring people to tax fraud, and that was not good enough in Kodiakus. Two, I, will, I, I think that they're completely mischaracterizing the record here, and I, and I would urge you to take a closer look at it. But I will accept, for the sake of answering your question at this podium, that they've gotten it exactly right. The most they can show is a conspiracy that involved you know, Wilson and two people who were not even barely mentioned in a whisper during the course of this trial. So that would not have even remotely allowed them to introduce the evidence of Bruce Isaacson, Lori Laughlin, Jamal Abdelaziz, and the others. And frankly, with respect to the two defendants, the government even pitted the two defendants against each other during this trial. Remember, the, one of the issues was, did either of them see the fake profile that Singer sent to them? You have a third point? Uh, yes, Your Honor. My last point is on the property issue. And I just have one point on it. If an admissions offer is property, then every misstatement or omission in the kindergarten application is property fraud. I say that my daughter is kind. I don't disclose her temper tantrums. I have just committed property fraud. Respectfully, that's absurd. The most they've been deprived of, as uh, Judge Lopez, you were getting at, is the right to information under the right to control theory, but they've abandoned that. And you shouldn't let them walk through the back door what they've explicitly abandoned through the front. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Joshua Sharp for Abdelaziz. Just two points on the overwhelming nature of the evidence. The government's own FBI agent said that it wasn't clear whether Aziz saw the false profile that was so central to their case. And number two, the government talked about Singer's pitch and how Aziz must have received the same pitch that other parents like Isaacson and Kaplan received. And that's overwhelming evidence of guilt. There's another big exclusion of evidence in this case. The district court excluded all defense evidence showing that Singer often described the side door and himself as totally above board. To other parents at the big corporations like Starbucks as an invited speaker, he told them the side door was legitimate, welcomed by universities, that he read applications at major colleges, and that he often dined with the presidents of Ivy League universities. That evidence was central to the defendant's good faith case, and its exclusion was deeply prejudicial to Kamal Abdelaziz. Thank you. Thank you all for the argument. That concludes argument in this case.